Chapter Six, Part Four of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Six: The Common Speech, Part Four: The Pronoun. The following paradigm shows the inflections of the personal pronoun in the American common speech: first person common gender, nominative, singular, I, plural, we, possessive conjoint, singular, my, plural, our, possessive absolute, singular, mine, plural, ourn, objective, singular, me, plural, us, second person, common gender, Singular, nominative, you, plural, use. Possessive conjoint, singular, your, plural, your. Possessive absolute, singular, yourn, plural, yourn. Objective, singular, you, plural, use. Third person, masculine gender, nominative, singular, he, plural, they. Possessive conjoint, singular, his, plural, their. Possessive absolute, singular, hisn, plural, theirn. Objective singular, him, plural, them. Feminine gender, nominative, singular, she, plural, they. Possessive conjoint, singular, her, plural, their. Possessive absolute singular, hern, plural, theirn. Objective singular, her, plural, them. Neuter gender, nominative, singular, it, plural, they. Possessive conjoint singular, its, plural, theirn. Possessive absolute singular, its, plural, there. Objective singular, it, plural, them. These inflections, as we shall see, are often disregarded in use, but nevertheless it is profitable to glance at them as they stand. The only variations that they show from standard English are the substitution of n for s as the distinguishing mark of the absolute form of the possessive, and the attempt to differentiate between the logical and the merely polite plurals in the second person by adding the usual sign of the plural to the former. The use of N in place of S is not an American innovation. It is found in many of the dialects of English, and is in fact historically quite as sound as the use of S. In John Wycliffe's translation of the Bible, circa 1380, the first sentence of the Sermon on the Mount, Mark 5, verse 3, is made. Blessed be the poor in spirit, for the kingdom in heavens is herein. And in his version of Luke 24, verse 24, is this, And some of Aaron went into the grave. Here, herein, or herein, represents, of course, not the modern hers, but theirs. In Anglo-Saxon, the word was heora, and down to Chaucer's day a modified form of it here was still used in the possessive plural in place of the modern there, 
though they had already displaced high in the nominative. Footnote. Henry Bradley, in The Making of English, pages 54 and 55. In the parts of England which were largely inhabited by Danes, the native pronouns, i.e., heo, his, heom, and heora, were supplanted by the Scandinavian pronouns which are represented by the modern she, they, them, and their. This substitution, at first dialectical, gradually spread to the whole language. End footnote. But in John Purvey's revision of the Wycliffe Bible, made a few years later, Hearn actually occurs in Second Kings 8, verse 6, thus, Restore thou to her all things that had been Hearn. In Anglo-Saxon there had been no distinction between the conjoint and absolute forms of the possessive pronouns. The simple genitive sufficed for both uses. But with the decay of that language the surviving remnants of its grammar began to be put to service somewhat recklessly. And so there arose a genitive inflection of this genitive, a true double inflection. In the northern dialects of English that inflection was made simply by adding s, the sign of the possessive. In southern dialects the old n declension was applied. And so there arose such forms as minum and yorum, mine and yours, from mine and your, my and your. Meanwhile, the original simple genitive, now become your, also survived. And so the literature of the 14th century shows the three forms flourishing side by side, your, yours, and urin. All of them are in Chaucer. Thus, yorn, hern, hisn, ourn, and theirn, whatever their present offense to grammarians, are of a genealogy quite as respectable as that of yours, hers, his, ours, and theirs. Both forms represent a doubling of inflections and hence grammatical debasement. On the side of the yours form is the standard usage of the past five hundred years. But on the side of the yearn form there is no little force of analogy and logic as appears on turning to mine and thine. In Anglo-Saxon, as we have seen, my was mine. In the same way, thy was thine. During the decadence of the language the final n was dropped in both cases before nouns, that is, in the conjoint form, but it was retained in the absolute form. This usage survives to our own day. One says, my book, but the book is mine. Thy faith, but I am thine. Footnote. Before a noun beginning with a vowel, thine and mine are commonly substituted for thy and my, as in thine eyes and mine infirmity. But this is solely for the sake of euphony. There is no compensatory use of my and thy in the absolute. End footnote. Also one says, no matter, but I have none. Without question, this retention of the n in these pronouns had something to do with the appearance of the n declension in the treatment of your, her, his, and our, and after there had displaced here in the third person plural, in there. And equally without question, it supports the vulgar American usage today. 
What that usage shows is simply the strong popular tendency to make language as simple and as regular as possible, to abolish subtleties and exceptions. The difference between his book and the book is hisn is exactly that between my and mine, thy and thine, in the examples just given. Perhaps it would have been better, says Bradley, if the literary language had accepted hisn, but from some cause it did not do so. As for the addition of s to you in the nominative and objective of the second person plural, it exhibits no more than an effort to give clarity to the logical difference between the true plural and the mere polite plural. In several other dialects of English the same desire has given rise to cognate forms, and there are even secondary devices in American. In the South, for example, the true plural is commonly indicated by you all, which, despite a northern belief to the contrary, is never used in the singular by any save the most ignorant. You all, like use, simply means you jointly, as opposed to the you that means thou. Again, there is the form observed in you can all of you go to hell, another plain effort to differentiate between singular and plural. The substitution of you for thou goes back to the end of the 13th century. It appeared in late Latin and in the other continental languages as well as in English, and at about the same time. In these languages the true singular survives alongside the transplanted plural, but English has dropped it entirely save in its poetical and liturgical forms, and in a few dialects. It passed out of ordinary polite speech before Elizabeth's day. By that time indeed its use had acquired an air of the offensive, such as it has today save between intimates or to children in Germany. Thus at the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh in 1603, Sir Edward Coke, then Attorney General, displayed his animosity to Raleigh by addressing him as thou, and finally burst into the contemptuous, I thou thee, thou traitor. And in Twelfth Night, Sir Toby Belch urges Sir Andrew Ogcheek to provoke the disguised Viola to combat by thouing her. In our own time, with thou passed out entirely, even as a pronoun of contempt, the confusion between you in the plural and you in the singular presents plain difficulties to a man of limited linguistic resources. He gets around them by setting up a distinction that is well supported by logic and analogy. I seen yous is clearly separated from I seen you, and in the conjoint position, yous guys is separated from you liar. So much for the personal pronouns. As we shall see, they are used in such a manner that the distinction between the nominative and the objective forms, though still existing grammatically, has begun to break down. But first it may be well to glance at the demonstrative and relative pronouns. Of the former there are but two in English, this and that, with their plural forms these and those. To them American adds a third, them, which is also the personal pronoun, of the third-person objective case. Footnote. It occurs, too, of course, in other dialects of English, though by no means in all. The Irish influence probably had something to do with its prosperity in vulgar American. At all events, the Irish use it in the American manner. Joyce, in English as we speak it in Ireland, pages 34 and 35, argues that this usage was suggested by Gaelic. In Gaelic, the accusative pronouns a, e, and eid 
him, her, and them, are often used in place of the nominatives, say, see, and siad, he, she, and they, as in, isiad sheen na bukailiji, them are the boys. This is good grammar in Gaelic, and the Irish, when they began to learn English, translated the locution literally. The familiar Irish, John is dead and him always so hearty, shows the same influence. End footnote. In addition, it has adopted certain adverbial pronouns, this here, these here, that there, those there, and them there, and set up inflections of the original demonstratives by analogy with mine, hisen, and yourn, to wit, thisen, thesen, thaten, and thosen. I present some examples of everyday use. Them are the kind I like. Them men all work here. Who is this here Smith I hear about? These here are mine. That their medicine ain't no good. Those their wops has all took to the woods. I wished I had one of them there forwards. Thisn is better than thatn. I like thesen better than thosen. The origin of the demonstratives of the thisn group is plain. They are degenerate forms of this one, that one, etc., just as none is a degenerate composition form of not one. In every case of their use that I have observed, the simple demonstratives might have been set free, and one actually substituted for the terminal in. But it must be equally obvious that they have been reinforced very greatly by the absolutes of the hisen group, for in their relation to the original demonstratives they play the part of just such absolutes, and are never used conjointly. Thus one says in American, I take thisn, or thisn is mine. But one never says, I take thisn hat, or thisn dog is mine. In this conjoint situation, plain this is always used. And the same rule applies to these, those, and that. Them, being a newcomer among the demonstratives, has not yet inquired an inflection in the absolute. I have never heard themen, and it will probably never come in, for it is forbiddingly clumsy. One says in American, both them are mine, and them collars are mine. This here, these here, that there, those there, and them there, are plainly combinations of pronouns and adverbs, and their function is to support the distinction between proximity, as embodied in this and these, and remoteness, as embodied in that, those, and them. This here coat is mine simply means this coat here, or this present coat, is mine. But the adverb promises to coalesce with the pronoun so completely as to obliterate all sense of its distinct existence, even as a false noun or adjective. As commonly pronounced, this here becomes a single word, somewhat like this year, and these here becomes these year, and that there and then there become that air and them air. Those there, if I observed accurately, is still pronounced more distinctly, but it too may succumb to composition in time. The adverb will then sink to the estate of a mere inflectional particle, as one has done in the absolute of the thisn group. Them, as a personal pronoun in the absolute, of course, is commonly pronounced em, as in I seen em, and sometimes its vowel is almost lost. 
but this is also the case in all save the most exact spoken English. Sweet and Lounsbury, following the German grammarians, argue that this M is not really a debased form of them, but the offspring of him, which survived as a regular plural of the third person in the objective case down to the beginning of the 15th century. But in American, them is clearly pronounced as a demonstrative. I have never heard M men or M are the kind I like, but always them men and them are the kind I like. The relative pronouns, so far as I have been able to make out, are declined as follows. Nominative. Who, which, what, that. Possessive conjoint. Whose, whose. Possessive absolute. Whosen, whosen. Objective. Who, which, what, that. Two things will be noted in this paradigm. First, there is the disappearance of whom is the objective form of who. And secondly, there is the appearance of an inflected form of whose in the absolute, by analogy with mine, hisen, and thesen. Whom, as we have seen, is fast disappearing from standard spoken American. In the vulgar language, it is already virtually extinct. Not only is who used in such construction as who did you find there, where even standard spoken English would tolerate it, but also in such constructions as the man who I saw, them who I trust in, and to who. Crap explains the use of who on the ground that there is a general feeling, due to the normal word order in English, that the word which precedes the verb is the subject word, or at least the subject form. But this explanation is probably fanciful. Among the plain people, no such general feeling for case exists. Their only general feeling is a prejudice against case inflections in any form whatsoever. They use who in place of whom simply because they can discern no logical difference between the significance of the one and the significance of the other. Whosen is obviously the offspring of the other absolutes in in. In the conjoint relation plain, whose is always used as in whose hat is that, and the man whose dog bit me but in the absolute whosen is often substituted, as in, if it ain't hisen, then whosen is it? The imitation is obvious. There is an analogous form of which, to wit, whichen, resting heavily on which one. Thus, whichen do you like, and I didn't say whichen, are plainly variations of which one do you like, and I didn't say which one. That, as we have seen, has a like form, thatn, but never, of course, in the relative situation. I like thatn is familiar, but the one thatn I like is never heard. If that as a relative could be used absolutely, I have no doubt that it would change to thatn, as it does as a demonstrative. So with what? As things stand, it is sometimes substituted for that, as in, them's the kind what I like, Joined to but, it can also take the place of that in other situations, as in, I don't know but what. The substitution of who, for whom, in the objective case just noted is typical of a general movement toward breaking down all case distinctions among the pronouns, where they make their last stand in English, and its dialects. This movement, of course, is not peculiar to vulgar American, nor is it of recent beginning. So long ago as the 15th century, the old clear distinction between ye nominative 
and U objective disappeared, and today the latter is used in both cases. Sweet says that the phonetic similarity between ye and thee, the objective form of the true second singular, was responsible for this confusion. At the start ye actually went over to the objective case, and the usage thus established shows itself in such survivors of the period as hark ye, hark ye, and look ye. In modern spoken English, indeed, you in the objective often has a sound far more like that of ye than like that of you, as in, for example, how do you do? And in American, its vowel takes the neutral form of the e in the definite article, and the word becomes a sort of shortened ya. But whatever emphasis is laid upon it, you becomes quite distinct even in American. In I mean you, for example, there is never any chance of mistaking it for ye. In Shakespeare's time, the other personal pronouns of the objective case threatened to follow you into the nominative, and there was a compensatory movement of the nominative pronouns toward the objective. Lounsbury has collected many examples. Marlowe used, Is it him you seek? Tis her I esteem, and Not thee nor them shall want. Fletcher used, Tis her I admire. Shakespeare himself used, That's me. Contrarywise, Webster used, What difference is between the Duke and I? And Green used, Nor earth nor heaven shall part my love and I. Crap has unearthed many similar examples from the Restoration dramatists. Etheridge used, Tis them, It may be him, Let you and I, And nor is it me. Matthew Pryor, in a famous couplet, achieved this, For thou art a girl as much brighter than her, as he was a poet sublimer than me. The free exchange continued, in fact, until the eighteenth century was well advanced. There are examples of it in Addison. Moreover, it survived, at least in part, even the attack that was then made upon it by the professors of the newborn science of English grammar. And to this day, it is me is still in more or less good colloquial use. Sweet thinks that it is supported in such use, though not, of course, grammatically, by the analogy of the correct, it is he and it is she. Lounsbury, following Dean Alford, says it came into English in imitation of the French, c'est moi, and defends it as at least as good as it is I. The contrary form between you and I has no defenders and is apparently going out. But in the shape of between my wife and I, it is seldom challenged, at least in spoken English. All these liberties with the personal pronouns, however, fade to insignificance when put beside the thoroughgoing confusion of the case forms in vulgar American. Us fellers is so far established in the language that we fellers from the mouth of a car conductor would seem almost an affectation. So too is me and her are friends. So again are I seen you and her, her and I sat down together, him and his wife, I knowed it was her. Here are some other characteristic examples of the use of the objective forms and the nominative from Charters and Lardner. Me and her was both late. His brother is taller than him. That little boy was me. Us girls went home. They were John and him. Her and little Al is to stay here. 
She says she thinks us and the Allens. If Weaver and them had not have begun kicking, but not me. Him and I are friends. Me and them are friends. Less numerous, but still varied and plentiful, are the substitutions of nominative forms for objective forms. She gave it to mother and I. She took all of we children. I want you to meet he and I at 29th Street. He gave he and I both some. It is going to cost me six dollars a week for a room for she and the baby. Anything she has is okay for I and Flory. Here are some grotesque confusions indeed. Perhaps the best way to get at the principles underlying them is to examine first not the cases of their occurrence, but the cases of their non-occurrence. Let us begin with the transfer of the objective form to the nominative in the subject relation. Me and her was both late. Is obviously sound American. One hears it or something like it on the streets every day. But one never hears, me was late, or her was late, or us was late, or him was late, or them was late. Again one hears, us girls was there, but never us was there. Yet again one hears, her and John was married, but never her was married. The distinction here set up should be immediately plain. It exactly parallels that between her and hern, our and arn, there and theirn. The tendency, as Sweet says, is to merge the distinction of nominative and objective in that of conjoint and absolute. The nominative in the subject relation takes the usual nominative form only when it is in immediate contact with its verb. If it be separated from its verb by a conjunction or any other part of speech, even including another pronoun, it takes the objective form. Thus, me went home would strike even the most ignorant shop girl as Brad Grammar, but she would use me and my friend went, or me and him, or he and her, or me and them, without the slightest hesitation. What is more, if the separation be effected by a conjunction and another pronoun, the other pronoun also changes to the objective form, even though its contact with the verb may be immediate. Thus one hears me and her was there, not me and she. Her and him kissed, not her and he. Still more, this second pronoun commonly undergoes the same inflection, even when the first member of the group is not another pronoun, but a noun. Thus one hears, John and her were married, not John and she. To this rule there is but one exception, and that is in the case of the first-person pronoun, especially in the singular. Him and me are friends is heard often, but him and I are friends is also heard. I seems to suggest the subject very powerfully. It is actually the subject of perhaps a majority of the sentences uttered by an ignorant man. At all events, it resists the rule at least partially, and may even do so when actually separated from the verb by another pronoun, itself in the objective form. As for example, in I and him were there. In the predicate relation, the pronouns respond to a more complex regulation. When they follow any form of the simple verb of being, they take the objective form as in It's me, it ain't him, and I am him probably because the transitiveness of this verb exerts a greater pull than its function as a mere copula, and perhaps too because the passive naturally tends to put the speaker in the place of the object. 
I seen he, or he kissed she, or he struck I, would seem as ridiculous to an ignorant American as to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his instinct for simplicity and regularity naturally tends to make him reduce all similar expressions, or what seem to him to be similar expressions, to coincidence with the more seemly I seen him. After all, the verb of being is fundamentally transitive, and in some ways the most transitive of all verbs, and so it is not illogical to bring its powers over the pronoun into accord with the powers exerted by the others. I incline to think that it is some such subconscious logic, and not the analogy of it is he, as Sweet argues, that has brought it is me to conversational respectability even among rather careful speakers of English. Footnote. It may be worth noting here that the misuse of me for my, as in I lit me pipe, is quite unknown in American, either standard or vulgar. Even me own is seldom heard. This boggling of the cases is very common in spoken English. End footnote. But against this use of the objective form in the nominative position after the verb of being, there also occurs in American a use of the nominative form in the objective position as in she gave it to mother and I, and she took all of we children. What lies at the bottom of it seems to be a feeling somewhat resembling that which causes the use of the objective form before the verb, but exactly contrary in its effects. That is to say, the nominative form is used when the pronoun is separated from its governing verb, whether by a noun, a noun phrase, or another pronoun, as in she gave it to mother and I, she took all of we children and he paid her and I, respectively. But here usage is far from fixed, and one observes variations in both directions. That is, toward using the correct objective when the pronoun is detached from the verb, and toward using the nominative even when it directly follows the verb. She gave it to mother and me, she took all of us children, and he paid her and me, would probably sound quite as correct to a knight of Pythias as the forms just given. And at the other end, Charters and Lardner report such forms as, I want you to meet he and I, and it is going to cost me six dollars a week for a room for she and the baby. I have noticed, however, that in the overwhelming main, the use of the nominative is confined to the pronoun of the first person, and particularly to its singular. Here again we have an example of the powerful way in which I asserts itself and superimposed upon that influence is a cause mentioned by Sweet in discussing between you and I. It is a sort of by-product of the pedagogical war upon it is me. As such expressions, he says, are still denounced by the grammars, many people try to avoid them in speech as well as in writing. The result of this reaction is that the me in such constructions as between John and me, and he saw John and me, sounds vulgar and ungrammatical, and is consequently corrected into I. Here the pedagogue, seeking to impose an inelastic and illogical grammar upon a living speech, succeed only in corrupting it still more. Following than and as, the American uses the objective form of the pronoun as in he is taller than me, and such is her. He also uses it following like, but not when, as often happens, he uses the word in place of as or as if. Thus he says, do it like him, but do it like he does, and she looks like she was sick. What appears here is an instinctive feeling that these words, followed by a pronoun only, 
are not adverbs but prepositions, and that they should have the same power to put the pronoun into an oblique case that other prepositions have. Just as the taller of we would sound absurd to all of us, so taller than he, to the unschooled American, sounds absurd. This feeling has a good deal of respectable support. As her was used by Swift, than me by Burke, and than whom by Milton. The brothers Fowler show that in some cases than him is grammatically correct and logically necessary. For example, compare I love you more than him and I love you more than he. The first means I love you more than I love him. The second, I love you more than he loves you. In the first, him does not refer to I, which is nominative, but to you, which is objective, and so it is properly objective also. But the American, of course, uses him even when the preceding noun is in the nominative, save only when another verb follows the pronoun. Thus he says, I love you better than him, but I love you better than he does. In the matter of the reflexive pronouns, the American Vulgate exhibits forms which plainly show that it is the spirit of the language to regard self, not as an adjective, which it is historically, but as a noun. This confusion goes back to Anglo-Saxon days. It originated at a time when both the adjectives and the nouns were losing their old inflections. Such forms as Petruself, Peterself, Christself, Christself, and I-self, I-self, then came into use, and along with them came combinations of self and the genitive, still surviving in his self and their selves, or their self. Down to the 16th century, these forms remained in perfectly good usage. Each for his self, for example, was written by Sir Philip Sidney, and it is to be found in the dramatists of the time, though modern editors always change it to himself. How the dative pronoun got itself fashioned upon self in the third person masculine and neuter is one of the mysteries of language, but there it is, and so against all logic, history, and grammatical regularity, himself, themselves, and itself, not its self, are in favor today. But the American, as usual, inclines against these illogical exceptions to the rule set by myself. I constantly hear his self and their selves, as in, he done it himself, and they don't know their selves. Sometimes their self is substituted for their selves, as in, they all seen it their self. Also the emphatic own is often inserted between the pronoun and the noun, as in, let every man save his own self. The American pronoun does not necessarily agree with its noun in number. I find, I can tell each one what they make, each fellow put their foot on the line, nobody can do what they like, and she was one of these kind of people in charters, and I am not the kind of man that is always thinking about their record. If he was to hit a man in the head, they would think their nose tickled, in Lardner. At the bottom of this error there is a real difficulty, the lack of a pronoun of the true common gender in English corresponding to the French soi and son. His after a noun or pronoun connoting both sexes often sounds inept, and his or her is intolerably clumsy. Thus the inaccurate plural is often substituted. 
the brothers Fowler have discovered anybody else who have only themselves in view in Richardson, and everybody is discontented with their lot in Disraeli, and Ruskin once wrote, if a customer wishes you to injure their foot. In spoken American, even the most careful, they and there often appear. I turn to the congressional record at random and in two minutes find, if anyone will look at the bank statements, they will see. In the lower reaches of the language, the plural seems to get into every sentence of any complexity, even when the preceding noun or pronoun is plainly singular. End of chapter 6, part 4. Recording by Philip Gould.